Good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Haggai. That's going to be in the Old Testament. Uh, you guys can cheat if you have phones, like it props up real easy, pops up real easy. Uh, but it's the third from the last book in the Old Testament. And it, it hit me this morning, like that we've got Haggai and then Zechariah and then Malachi. And then God goes silent for almost 400 years. And just to kind of help drive home the importance of this message, just think, if, if you were going to not speak to somebody for a long period of time, what would one of the last things you say to them be? And that is the book and the message of Haggai. As we, we launched into this month-long study of this Old Testament prophet book last week, and we saw that, uh, that God's people, this is a really timely message for us to be studying, as God's people are coming out of captivity. Things are returning to normal. They're getting back to the land, to Judah and Jerusalem. And as they come back into their homeland after being gone for 50 or 60 years, that things are opening back up. And, and last week we saw kind of the anthem verse for this series is actually not going to be from the book of Haggai, but from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus, in kind of raising the bar on the law, in, in deepening the, the disciples and those gathered, their understanding of how desperately they needed a Savior, in the midst of this sermon, he says that you're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the rest will be added unto you. That we have a, a desperate need to be reminded often as God's people that we shouldn't look to our own kingdoms, but rather seek God's kingdom. And that's not just Jesus bringing about new information, but that's really the theme of the book of Haggai, that God's people come back out of captivity and they return home and they see the temple is lying in ruins. They see their homes are completely destroyed. Their economy is in shambles. And rather than focusing on God's house and God's kingdom, they fix their eyes on themselves and they start rebuilding their homes. And the book of Haggai really breaks down into four sermons. And last week was, was really this encouragement encouragement for God's people to consider their ways, to think about the journey and really realign their priorities. And the way that we defined priorities last week was the things that you think, say, and do, which reveal who you are. And what we saw out of this first sermon from Haggai was an amazing response from God's people. That as God's people heard God's word through the prophet Haggai, they responded in faithful obedience. They got to work. They, they were broken in their hearts at their lack of concern for the sin that they were plagued with. And so they got to work on the temple. But before even that work began, we see this beautiful encouragement from the Lord as before any real construction has started, God is quick to enter in and say, I am with you. This isn't about you and I becoming better people or walking in perfect obedience, but rather resting in the power and presence of the Lord and trusting that he is with us. So with, with that, we see that a few weeks go by and we're going to jump into chapter two and really the second sermon of, of Haggai. In, and it starts out in chapter two, verse one. He says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
He says, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And we'll get into the sermon here in a second. But I love every sermon throughout this book is going to start in a very similar fashion with, with Haggai being concerned about data. And so this morning, if you're in here, I'm married to a data analyst. I don't, I don't really know what that means other than I think she analyzes data. Um, but if you love Excel and spreadsheets and graphs and math and charts and statistics, like I want you to hear this morning from God's word, like you're not weird. I mean, a little bit, but, but God loves data. Like here in the book of Haggai, every sermon is going to start out with some data, with some information, with stuff to help us better understand what is going on. And what I want us to see here at the beginning in verses one and two, as we get some kingdom information, we get some data as to what's going on in the kingdom of God, in, in and around God's people, is that the data matters, It's going to inform how we understand this second sermon. And so just a few things I want to pull out here. First off, we saw in chapter one in the first sermon that he, that the prophet Haggai came and he spoke to Zerubbabel and he spoke to Joshua that we get this, this, the prophet of God speaking to the king and the priest of God. And it starts out with, with God addressing the leadership. But here in the second sermon, it says that he speaks not just to Zerubbabel, not just to Joshua, but to all the remnant of God's people. Roughly 50,000 people had returned back to Jerusalem, and they're focusing and beginning the work of rebuilding God's temple. And in the midst of their, their work, Haggai is going to stand up and he's going to address everybody. That this isn't just for the leaders, this is for all of God's people. But there's another piece that I think we could easily miss. If we go back and look at just the beginning, he says in the seventh month of the 21st day, the timeline is extremely significant here as this would have been towards the tail end. If we go back and study the calendar, this would have been at the very end of the Feast of Booths. That in the seventh month, in the 21st day, this would have been as they're wrapping up this week-long celebration and reflection and remembering of God's faithfulness to the Israelites in freeing them from the Egyptian rule and reign. And how God sovereignly and powerfully led them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, that God provided for them, that God, that God protected them, that he gave them clothes that wouldn't wear out, shoes that wouldn't wear out. He provided manna from heaven. He made water flow from a rock. And they spend a week gathering together and remembering God's faithfulness, God's power, and God's protection. And it's at the end of this week, as they gather together in the city, and they basically have a week-long camp out, that God instructs Haggai to stand up and deliver this second message to God's people roughly a month after they've begun construction on this rebuilding of God's temple so that they can worship and sacrifice. He's going to stand up and he's going to start helping them not just have kingdom priorities, but have a kingdom perspective. And it's going to start off in verse three with three rhetorical questions. Haggai says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? 
the way that this sermon begins is pointing out, and what we, what we learn in these rhetorical questions is that there are people present here who remember the beauty and the splendor of Solomon's temple. They remember the majesty and the power of worship. And, and really, what by asking these questions, what Haggai and the Lord through Haggai is addressing is that some of the people, as they've been reflecting and remembering the good old days, they're getting stuck in the past. And while there's a lot of beauty and we are often in the Bible commanded to remember because we are prone to forget, there is a danger and a temptation in getting stuck in, man, the way things used to be. And as God's people are coming out of captivity and as they're beginning this project, roughly a month in, they need this encouragement that presently we are being tempted to be stuck in the good old days. And so I thought it would be fun this morning before we get into the rest of Haggai's message. Um, I just, I spent some time contemplating, like for me, what would the good old days be? I'm, I'm going to be 37 in a week. Um, and so if you want to go shopping for birthday presents this week, feel free. Uh, I'm going to be 37. I was born in 1984. And so I spent some time this week going, man, what were the good old days? When did life feel simpler? When did life feel easier? When was it less hectic? And I found some pictures of just things. So this might, this might hit you. This might not. If it doesn't, I think a fun conversation to have around the lunch table this afternoon would be, man, when were the good old days for me? Whether that's to my students that are in the room, or if you have a little more wisdom, that's a very polite way of calling you older. Um, so this is the first picture I wanted to show. This just evokes nostalgia in me. And I would have not thought that this would be such an ancient and out-of-date picture. But this just brings back like weekend nights where we'd go to Little Caesars. I'm old enough that like, I remember before Hot and Ready's. And so you'd have to go order the pizza at Little Caesars. And while they were making the pizza, you'd go around the corner and you'd rent the Blockbuster video and you'd rush in and you'd be so excited for the new release wall. And they'd have hundreds and hundreds of copies and you'd think, yes, I'm finally going to get Adam's Family Values. And you'd run up and grab and behind it was a fake case and they were always out and you never got the video. And so you'd rent Biodome for the 50 54th time or whatever. Um, but man, I just, I see that and I feel, man, I'm swept back to a simpler time. Uh, secondly, how many of you VHS tapes, Disney movies? Like, I actually think these are like worth some serious money on like eBay and stuff now. So if you've got those collecting dust somewhere, uh, you should sell them and give the money to the church. Um, but I can like still hear the sound that these make as you open them. And then in our house, it always ended up becoming like, you'd open up Beauty and the Beast, expecting to find Beauty and the Beast, but it'd be Lion King, and you'd go to the Lion King case, and it'd be something else. And and then it became this, like, let's find the movie. And so you had to work for it. It wasn't just the click of a button. And then inevitably, you'd put it in the VHS thing, and you'd have to rewind it, and you'd have to wait. And just things, teenagers, young kids, like, you guys just, you miss out. Like, all that fun anticipation and frustration, everything's available at a click of a button now. These were the good old days. Uh, the choose-your-own-adventure stories. How many of us, anybody? Choose-your-own-adventure? Yes, I love, like, I know I read Space Patrol. I know I read House of Danger. Um, and I grew up when Book It was a thing. I don't think it still really is, and if it is, they've changed it and made it way less awesome. But it used to be, like, fill up a card, and you'd get a free pizza. And look at me, like, I like pizza. I like food. Um, and so this was my secret. 
Because inevitably, you start out on page one, you're dead by page five, and you're like, I finished the book. I died. I chose my own adventure, and I'm dead. So I could run to the librarian and be like, I'm done. I finished this book. Give me the stamp. Give me my pizza. Um, That was my trick. That was how I rocked it at Book It every year. Uh, Next picture. So how many of you, TGIF? Yes. Okay. You guys are, I like the 11 o'clock so much better. You guys are far more engaged in this, this trip down memory lane with me. Thank you for coming this morning. So, uh, I was not a huge dinosaurs fan. I was more of a full, full house. Like I love the Danny Tanner moments, but this was the, the highest resolution graphic I could find, but I loved Urkel. Boy Meets World, I know takes, is, is, is a great show. Um, and, and so, but I also step by step, like there was just this anticipation all week long of what's going on. It wasn't just binge-worthy. Like, you had to wait and look forward to it, and you got wrapped up in these families' lives. It was awesome. I miss TGIF. Next one. So I threw this one up here, really, because the other day I was watching the basketball playoffs with my oldest son, and Apple has the new iMacs that are coming out, if you've seen commercials for them. It's basically these, but in 2021, where they're, they're colored. They're, they've got red and yellow and orange. And so when I saw the orange one, I was like, I want a new computer. I don't need a new computer. I don't even really do much on the computer. If I told you guys what I do, like I basically use it as a giant notepad. The fact that I have a computer at all is kind of ridiculous. But when I saw it was orange, I was like, I gotta have one. I'm not gonna buy one. My wife won't let me. But, but these were the coolest computers back in the day. I remember in like the early 2000s, if you had one of these, I served in a children's ministry that we had one, and I was like, this is awesome. This is the coolest thing because it comes in colors. And back in the day, like this was small and sleek and awesome. And I was telling my 15-year-old that, and he goes, that thing looks like a dinosaur. Like, I can't believe you were ever excited. Like, that thing could kill somebody now. Like, with where computers have gone, that thing is insane and ridiculous. But I still look at it, and I'm like, that's awesome. I wish I had one. Um, Next one. I think this is the last one. So this is not something that brings back nostalgia for me. So that's okay. But as I was flipping through pictures this week, I saw these and I showed them to my wife. And my wife was like, yes, I love those shoes. I wore those all the time. So I'm looking for some for the next gift giving occasion for my wife. Uh, But ladies, just out of curiosity, did anybody rock these? Whatever they are, dress shoes, sandals. There's a few. Okay. Okay. Not as many as TGIF, but I'm just saying like those, those, those were things that ladies wore and they were super cool. And now they're not. Um, and so it's so much fun to look back and remember, but let me just for a second, let's use the computer as an illustration. Like I desperately wanted one of those. I thought they were the coolest thing ever. And now I think I could probably go to like Ark and pick one up for like five bucks. And if I went and bought one and decided this is my computer, like it wouldn't do a fraction of what my phone does now. And I would miss out on all of the power, all of the the technology, all of the advancement, all of the present realities if I felt like, man, I have to use these super cool iMacs from 2000, 2001. Like, technology has taken us to a much better and different place. And for me to stay stuck there, I wouldn't be using all that is available to me. That is what, through these rhetorical questions, Haggai and the Lord through Haggai is bringing out in God's people, is they are presently stuck in the past. 
and they're feeling discouraged and they're feeling down about their ability to work well for God's kingdom because it doesn't measure up to those good old days. And so he's wanting them to presently see and have a new perspective about what God is doing. And so he exposes the tension and then now he's going to give them three encouragements throughout, or throughout this sermon, starting in verse four. He says, yet now, right now today, he says, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. He starts out wanting them to see their kingdom power, that they have the ability to operate not from a position of weakness, but a position of strength. And I think it's significant that what he's going to encourage them with, again, let's remember where we're at. They're wrapping up the feast of booths. They have been reflecting and remembering God's faithfulness through Moses, God's faithfulness through Aaron, God's faithfulness through the Israelites, how he led them and protected them and provided for them and was powerful and went before them. And that Moses was this amazing leader. And as Moses' story is wrapping up at the end of Exodus and the beginning of Joshua, what we see is Moses dies and Joshua has to take over. And can we just for a moment acknowledge, like, those are some big shoes to fill. Like, that Joshua has to step into the guy who said, hey, let's part the Red Sea, and God works through him. The man who draws near to the thick darkness where God is and receives the Ten Commandments. The guy that, that God uses to bring plagues. The God that stands in front of Pharaoh and argues with him and goes toe to toe. Like, Moses was an amazing leader, and Joshua has the privilege to step into his shoes. I can only imagine how overwhelmed Joshua must have felt. And so that's why at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we get God graciously and lovingly entering in and saying, Joshua, be strong. Don't worry about the past. Be strong. I've got you. I'm going to work through you just like I worked through Moses. And after spending a week remembering all that Moses and God had done through Moses and the Israelites, and they're feeling stuck, and they're feeling overwhelmed, and they're not sure that what they're going to be able to do is going to match the beauty and splendor of Solomon's temple, we get God consistent in his word, consistent in his message, saying, be strong. Just like he whispered to Joshua, he, he proclaims through Haggai to all of God's people. He says, be strong. Recognize that you have a power available to you through me. Recognize your, your kingdom power, but it doesn't stop there. He wants them to see the kingdom provision. At the end of verse four, he says, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. If we remember from last week that Lord of hosts is gonna be the favorite way that Haggai refers to God. He refers to him often as the Lord of hosts. And that is a way of putting his sovereignty and his rule and his reign on display. And so he says that it's the Lord of hosts speaking that Haggai is just the mailman. He's just delivering the message. God is the one speaking to his people. And he reminds them consistent with the first sermon. Remember, he said, consider your ways. And then as the people responded in obedience, he said, I'm with you. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And so he wants them to see that he is providing his presence, that he is there with them, that they need to be reminded, I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. And then to me, most beautifully, he tells them work. 
I want us to see the grace and beauty of God in providing them with not just something to do, but rather he gives them vision and mission and direction. That they came back out of exile. Things are returning to normal. Things are opening back up and they fell right back into the temptation that led them into captivity in the first place. They're focused on themselves. They're ignoring God. They're fine with the temple being in ruins. They're fine in soaking in their sin. And God, rather than getting frustrated, taking a step back and washing his hands of his people, he lovingly and graciously enters in and says, get to work. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you mission. I'm going to give you vision. I want you to rebuild the temple. I want you to go up into the hills and grab wood and start rebuilding my house so that you can offer up sacrifices that are pleasing so that I can be glorified. And here in this second sermon, he's reminding them, I'm providing you with a task. I'm providing you with purpose. I'm providing you with a mission. Get after it because I'm with you. It doesn't matter if it matches up to the good old days. What matters is I'm actively working here and now. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So he wants them to see his power. He wants to see his provision. And then lastly, he wants them to see their peace in his kingdom in verse five. He says, according to the covenant that I have made with you when you came out of Egypt, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. Therefore, fear not that they don't have to be afraid that their work doesn't measure up to what it used to be because God is with them. They can rest in God's covenant, that God has made a promise, that God is faithful, that God is with them, that his spirit is going to remain. And as they work, they can trust that God is in the midst of it, that he hasn't left them, that his spirit is there, that they don't have to be discouraged. They don't have to be stuck in the past that God is with them. And so what they're focused on and what they're doing, while it may not be what it used to be, it's beautiful because God is in the midst and they can rest and have peace in that. And so he's encouraging them in this present tension where they're struggling and stuck as they've remembered the good old days. Some of them are feeling like, man, why do we even press forward? It just feels like it's not good enough. But it's not just about what they're supposed to do today. It's also about the beauty of God's promise for tomorrow. And that's where the sermon continues on. As in verse six, he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. Again, he started out with now, today, be strong. Today, get to work. Today, don't be afraid. But he says now in a little while, in the future, he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. That there is a coming day where God is going to put his kingdom power on display in such a way that is completely undeniable. That he is going, and that's when he says he's going to shake the earth, shake the land, shake the sea, that he's going to come and reveal himself and everything is going to respond. Everything is going to be impacted. And interestingly enough, one of, the, one of the few places in the New Testament that the book of Haggai is quoted is in the book of Hebrews, which we just spent the first half of the year studying and walking through. And in Hebrews chapter 12, our author, remembering this event, remembering this promise, remembering this proclamation, says this, at that time, his voice shook the earth But now he has promised, yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." As our author in the book of Hebrews remembers this story, remembers this proclamation through the prophet Haggai, one of the things that he points out in the book of Hebrews is that when God shows up and shakes the kingdom, the only thing that's going to remain is God's unshakable kingdom. The reason we should be concerned with seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness is because it's the only thing that lasts. Everything else fades away. Everything else crumbles. Everything else gets destroyed. I think it's interesting that here our audience is stuck in the past. They're struggling with the fact that Solomon's temple was so beautiful and so awesome that they feel paralyzed in their current efforts, yet it was lying in ruins. It had been destroyed and and it was needing to be rebuilt. But it's not about the physical temple. It's about their hearts and their ability to fix their eyes on God's kingdom. And so he's saying there's a day coming where I'm gonna put my kingdom power on display that not only do you need to have my power in the present, but you also need to have faith in the promise of my coming kingdom, of my coming power, where I'm going to unleash and everything is going to respond to who I am because I'm the sovereign Lord of hosts. I rule and reign. Nothing is outside of my control, but it's not just his power. He continues with, in the future, you'll see my provision. He says, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Verse eight says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. That God is providing for his kingdom through other nations, that God is sovereign over all of the wealth of the world. And in this day that is yet to come, God is basically going to take back what is his. I just can't help but wonder, man, how how would our lives look differently if we really believed that all the gold and silver, everything belonged to God? Man, we're so prone to take that Matthew 6 verse where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the rest will be added unto you. We're so prone to flip that and reverse it. To say, I'm gonna seek money. I'm gonna seek position. I wanna climb the corporate ladder. I wanna seek a bigger home. I wanna seek more comfort. I wanna seek more security. And, and then when I, get, when I get there, then maybe I'll focus on my relationship with the Lord. What if we really believed that, man, if we sought his kingdom first, everything else would take care of itself? What if we really believed that God owned all the wealth and that God would provide over and above what we could ever hope or anticipate? What if we really trusted? I I can tell you this, like if you are seeking after, man, more money, bigger house, more of your own kingdom, here's what I've just found in my own life and in my own heart, like there's always more month than there is money, regardless of how much money you make. It's never going to be enough because you're trying to fill a God's kingdom-sized hole with a kingdom that when it's shaken is going to be left and destroyed. 
It all belongs to the Lord. And he's saying, trust that I'm gonna provide. Trust that I'm for you. Trust that I'm with you. Trust that I'm gonna use other nations. I'm I'm the sovereign Lord of hosts. Trust my kingdom. Trust my power. Trust my provision. And then lastly, his peace. In verse nine, I think probably most importantly here, and, and probably the hardest for them to really grasp a hold of. This would have been like a jaw-dropping moment to the people in Haggai's day. He says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. They're looking at, this is how I just imagined it this week. If we could, for a moment, imagine Solomon's temple. It's this beautiful, majestic, well-constructed, no expenses were spared, place where God's glory and presence resided, where they had worshiped and they had offered sacrifices and God had been dwelling among them. And then it's, it's broken down and destroyed and abandoned for 50 to 60 years. And the people come back in and they start rebuilding the temple. And rather than it being beautiful and majestic, it's like two by fours and duct tape. And God looks at this work that to them seems insignificant and insufficient And he says, the glory I'm going to bring in and through that temple is going to make the previous one seem like nothing. I'm going to fill this house with far greater glory. You guys feel discouraged because you feel like you're not doing a good job. You don't understand my kingdom and my ways. It's going to be amazing. And as I thought about it this week, this temple that the people of God in Haggai's day are feeling down and doubting their efforts, this is the same temple that eventually Jesus is going to walk into. And he's going to worship. And he's going to teach. And he's going to lead. He's going to unroll a scroll and say, guess what, guys, I'm here. He's going to talk about that this should be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves, that that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to lean on the walls in this temple. He's going to sit in the temple as a teenager and teach and lead and discuss with other rulers and authorities and, and that Jesus himself is going to inhabit this place. And eventually, through the temple, through, through this building, he's going to make his way to the cross to open up a way for you and I to confidently draw near to our King of Kings, to confidently draw near to the Father, that he is going to bring peace. And that's exactly what the Lord says he's going to do in Haggai. That through this temple, peace is going to come. And Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace. And that word peace is not just the absence of conflict. That doesn't just mean, oh, we're not fighting in this moment. It is a complete and whole and sufficient that we are restored into perfect and right relationship with our God. And it comes through, in this day, they're struggling, feeling like, man, this isn't good enough. And God enters in and he says, it's not about you, it's about me. And you have no idea what I'm going to do through this place. Because through this temple, and again, just think about it for a moment. Like Jesus is going to worship here. He's going to be present here. He's going to fill this place with his presence so much better. And then through this temple, it's going to be destroyed. But Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to be of the temple. I'm going to lay my life down so that you don't need a place anymore. You just need a relationship with me. 
And so now today we don't come to a temple. We don't only have to worship here. We don't need a high priest to mediate for us because as Hebrews taught us, we have a far better high priest in Christ who has torn the veil and opened up the Holy of Holies that we can confidently draw near, that we get to be restored into right relationship with God. But it starts with these people being obedient to what God had called them to do trusting in his power, trusting in his provision and resting in his peace. And so for us this morning, you know, again, we don't, we don't come to a temple today. We come to a relationship. And so for us this morning, what I want us to really ask ourselves is, Lord, like where could we be stuck in the past? Looking for the good old days, looking for what you have done in the past And maybe where are we missing out on your power and provision in the present? Because Jesus, at the end of his life and ministry, he calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. God has provided us a mission. He has provided us direction. And man, if we're stuck in, this isn't like it used to be. Things still aren't fully open. Things still aren't completely back to normal. We could miss out on what God is doing today. And so I want to ask us, as we begin to transition and prepare kind of our hearts for communion, I'm going to have the, the band come back up. And, and the way that we do communion here is we've got uh, two, two communion stations on either side, and you make your way up, grab the elements, you can take, your, uh, take them back to your seat, and just as the Lord leads, um, you, you can remember Christ's broken body and shed blood. But here's, as you prepare your hearts, here's what I want you to ask yourself. What we see in this second sermon is a command for the people of God in the the present moment to be strong and work because God is with them. Where this morning is God calling you to stand and be strong and work well? He's given us a vision and a mission. He's given us purpose. Where over these next, I'm going to say just eight weeks, over the summer, like, Where is God calling you to get to work? In your home, in your neighborhood, at your gym. Again, as things are coming back to normal and we're getting to gather more, where is God saying, be there on mission for me? Work well, be strong, trust my power, trust my provision, rest in my peace. And how can we take these next few weeks and really put God on display? So I want you to spend some time prayerfully asking the Lord to open your eyes to the mission that he has for you right now over these next few weeks. And then as you feel led, as you feel ready, you can make your way to the table. And again, a great way that we can have a kingdom perspective is to fix our eyes. We can remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That the only reason we get to live on mission, the only reason we get to run after what he has for us is because we have peace with God through Christ. And so we celebrate and we reflect and we remember and then we leave here with a kingdom perspective to work for his kingdom with his power and his provision. Let's pray.